welcome to the Health Detective Podcast, a show dedicated to quieting the noise in the health, food, and fitness world. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren, former TV news journalist gone health detective with a master's in functional medicine and nutrition and doctorate in occupational therapy, bringing you over 20 years of clinical and personal experience, helping patients radically take their health back into their own hands. On this show, we have real conversations with a variety of interesting guests who are all a little bit of a health detective in their own way. Like today's guest, Dr. Marvin Singh, an integrative gastroenterologist and author of the book, Rescue Your Health. Dr. Marv is passionate about health optimization from the inside out, a topic near and dear to my heart as well. This episode is power-packed and full of juicy information on understanding all things the gut, why the gut is the gateway to health, and how to rescue your health starting from the inside out. Ultimately, get ready to uncover truths and expose the lies in both conventional health wisdom and diet culture as you know it, so you can reach your optimal potential. Before we dive in, if you're liking the show, please click the five stars button and leave a review in your podcast app. I absolutely love and appreciate hearing from you, and it helps us cultivate more health detectives just like you. And of course, if you need help in your own health journey, don't hesitate to reach out. I equally love hearing from you on my website, drlauren.com, and helping you heal your root in our amazing functional medicine-based programs over there, helping people worldwide change how they look, move, feel, and think. Okay, that's all, folks. Let's get to the show. Well, Dr. Singh, so excited to have you in the house to chat about one of my favorite topics, and I know yours as well, which is the gut. It's so cool to to meet an integrative gastroenterologist as well and someone that really understands um, the functionality of the gut and treats the gut just as a big part of a bigger piece of our health puzzle as a whole. Your book, Rescue Your Health, just sounds really amazing. I can't wait to, to dive into it. Um, before we get to just nerding out on all things gut though, would love you to just give a little bit of background about what got you doing this work you're doing in the world and, and really integrating some of the Hippocrates belief that all disease begins in the gut or in all health actually begins in the gut as well. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Um, it's always, uh, exciting to talk about, uh, my interest and my passions and, uh, I could talk forever on these topics, um, cause they're near and dear to my heart. Um, my, my story begins, I guess, um, when I, when I first finished my GI training. So I'm a gastroenterologist and I started practicing and, you know, realized that early on, uh, we, we do a great job of saving people when they're, uh, dying, when they're in the hospital or they're bleeding, um, or something like that. And we need to do life-saving procedures, but that wasn't really the majority of patients that would come to our office. The majority of patients that would come to your office are those who have chronic symptoms, those who have chronic problems and have multiple other problems and uh, seem to just be getting passed around from doctor to doctor to doctor um, with increasing frustration being built up uh, in, in the patient. Um, so I, I tackled this idea when I first started my career and uh, you know questioned, is it something that 
we are as a system doing wrong? Is it something that we weren't taught? What, what's missing? Or maybe it's me. Maybe I, maybe it's just me. I don't know what's going on. So I examined all different aspects of it and, and, and realized that no, it really wasn't me. It was really that we, we had an incomplete picture of how to take care of somebody and that when we look at somebody in our office, we shouldn't be looking at them as just a set of symptoms or a bunch of notes and old records that came to us from the prior provider. Um, but the person in front of us is a human, a human being. Uh, and it, it, funny enough, you know, sometimes that concept gets lost in the busy mix of the day, not intentionally, just kind of by default, I think. And if, if you start looking at the person, their environment, their diet, their stressors, other things, other aspects of life that we wouldn't ordinarily think to talk about in a regular doctor visit, then we might uncover a lot of things that we didn't know about before. And therein may actually be some of the answers you're looking for that have been uh, unresolved or unanswered. And uh, I got interested in this uh, type of concept early on in my career and had uh, some great mentors that kind of guided me towards integrative medicine. And I did a fellowship in integrative medicine uh, with the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine and became one of uh, very, very few integrative gastroenterologists in the United States. And uh, from there, it's all history. <laughs> yeah, it's it's such music to my ears to hear about that journey for you. And this coming from uh, a former patient for so many years, gut issues wise, gut health wise, and seeing multiple gastroenterologists in my young health history from the time I was like six, I couldn't poop when I was six. So a five or one cereal instead of lucky charms for breakfast. <laughs> and it still didn't <laughs> help um, at that time, but just feeling like I would run into roadblocks. And that's really what uh, spearheaded me into like my functional medicine path. And, and now like seeing a lot of patients come through um, my doors as well, that just like feel like they are running into roadblocks. They've done the scans at maybe the gastro or they've um, been prescribed a medication for anti-nausea, but they still aren't feeling better. Um, and so like, why do you think, uh, or what's the gap missing in gastroenterology and like in your training? Do you guys not parallel even like how diet can influence uh, the gut, for example? Like very few of my patients are usually... Um, told that diet can make a difference. Maybe the low FODMAP diet has made kind of on the scene for like IBS, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think is the missing link there? Because like the gut is exactly what digests everything we eat. <laughs> um, and food just being one example, because lifestyle can definitely play a role into gut issues as well. But I mean, just through your training, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it would probably be good uh, during GI training, probably during any training, medical school or internal medicine doesn't necessarily have to be during GI fellowship training because all doctors really should have an appreciation of this. But I think there there should be some sort of uh, course or, or intense, uh, you know, in depth uh, education on the gut microbiome and uh, its functions and nutrition in general. I mean, when we learn nutrition, we learn some very basic concepts and, you know, uh, a lot of it is pertinent to patients who are hospitalized, you know, like they need tube feeding or TPN or something like that. And, and a majority of the time, or at least in practical day-to-day uh, -day, uh, living, the doctors don't really manage that anyways, the dietitians in the hospital that do that. 
Um, so, uh, you know, you, you learn some of the very basic principles. And then when you get into practice, it's like, you're never really going to use it anyways, because you're just going to call the dietitian to, to, you know, uh, formulate the tube feed recommendations or TPN. And, and that's about it. So it's kind of like, you just kind of go about making your own theories and ideas based on what you think without any formal education or knowledge base really on how different things can impact things. So doctors end up trying to educate themselves over things and, um, you know, and that's always great, uh, but uh, some formal education and uh, understanding over some of these things is probably even better. So you can understand what the impacts are, not just, uh, you know, nutrient, nutrient wise, but also on the microbiome, because that's really the, the center of the discussion here. Oh, 100%. Well, where do you start with a patient that does come into you? And I imagine, I mean, a lot of your folks are overtly GI symptomology uh, that they're coming with. And yet the gut is related to so many other symptoms as well. So they probably have other symptoms. Um, where, where does your, how does your triage process start with helping um, understand where the root causes for individuals, um, gut related issues, health related issues are coming from start? How does that go down? Well, everybody is uniquely different in why they may come to see me uh, in my practice precision clinic. Some people may not even have gut symptoms at all, but nonetheless, that still doesn't matter because usually it would probably be a rare occurrence where it wouldn't be. But majority of the time, one of the first things we're talking about is the microbiome, uh, regardless of what your issue is, whether you're coming just for general health or because you're concerned about autoimmunity or some family history of something. Um, uh, because the microbiome, uh, you know, is the seat of our immune system. So chronic inflammation really uh, has its roots uh, in the microbiome. So if we don't look at that, at least as one of the starting points, then it's like, you know, you, you could be missing 70% of the, the problem you're trying to solve. Right. Well, kind of like, let's break that down a bit, um, because that is a very buzzword, the microbiome and the, how the gut microbiome impacts our health and research continues to evolve. Or do you mm -hmm. have any favorite um, like studies or examples that you like to give folks for just like the depth and the breadth to which the microbiome impacts our total health? Uh, well, if I was to list research, uh, probably we would be here for five years or something. <laughs> you could just go on PubMed and, and, and type in microbiome, and there's probably tens of thousands of articles on this topic. Um, for those who don't know what the microbiome is, I guess we should we can maybe start there. Uh, the, the microbiome, yeah. the microbiome is like an ecosystem, like a forest. You can kind of think of it, but it's inside your body. And when we say gut, we're referring to the digestive tract um, uh, and majority of these microbes or these bacteria that live in our gut, prime, mo most of them live in the colon. So um, these bacteria, uh, and by the way, it's not just bacteria, there could be yeast, there could be fungi, um, uh, there could be viruses. So it's maybe one misconception, some people that it's only bacteria and that it's bad if there's something else there, but no, you know, some of these other guys live there as normal inhabitants. Um, and, uh, it's how these, how these guys and gals inside of us interact, uh, respond to things, interact with each other, respond to food, um, what chemicals they release that that's where really a lot of the action happens. So, when we eat something, uh, let's just say broccoli, let's just pick on broccoli, for, for example, you know, it's not just like, 
you know, the eating experience isn't just the flavor in your mouth uh, and maybe you get some fiber so you have a good bowel movement. Um, a lot more happens, you know. Uh, it, it's like an event for the body. You you chew the food, you break it down. Uh, break the food breaks down through various parts of the GI tract, you know, in the stomach and the small bowel. Vitamins, minerals, nutrients are extracted, um, and when it gets to the microbiomes, home, primary home in the colon, um, uh, short chain fatty acids are produced, which are anti-inflammatory compounds uh, through the process of digestion and, uh, you know, uh, other chemicals or metabolites may also be released and they can impact other parts of our uh, health, body and organs. And then we have, you know, an outcome of perhaps better health overall, you know, if you're eating a lot of these kinds of foods, for example. Um, Same thing can happen if you're having a junk food diet, basically having you know, McDonald's and soda and candies and cookies, um, eating, you know, the process of eating is the same food goes in breaks down, you know, there may not be very many nutrients and minerals extracted from uh, junk food, but that food ends up uh, showing up at the microbiomes home and inflammatory compounds could be produced as a result of that. And they actually did a study um, a while back um, where they compared a Mediterranean diet to um, basically like this junk food diet. And they saw in the Mediterranean diet that uh, positive uh, impacts were made on the microbiome, improved diversity, improved ratios of different bacteria. And then when patients uh, did this junk food diet, I was heavy in soda and, and junk food type stuff. The opposite thing happened and more inflammatory things uh, happened in the microbiome. So it's important to understand that, you know, um, uh, because what we eat uh, impacts our health in many different ways. And this is where disease begins in the first place. Yeah. Describe a little bit about how it's um, also the gut microbiome can impact like our cravings and or like what we say we like or don't like. And um, I think that's a roadblock a lot of my folks run into is, um, or just humans in general, uh, you know, like, well, I don't like these certain foods. Like I have a patient right now, like hates vegetables with a passion. And so it's very challenging to change the diet <laughs> to vegetables when the mm-hmm. like is not there. And it's, I, it's kind of like which came first, the chicken or the egg, because the gut microbiome can definitely influence our cravings. And yet our diet can also shift the microbiome to then um, like develop new likes as well. I think it's like, as my background as an occupational therapist, we used to tell parents, it takes like a total of 17 times for a kid of trying something before they like it. Like on average, when we were working with like picky eaters and looking back on that, there's probably a reason why of like the gut is reshaping in order to uh, also be sending the signals to the brain that, you know, these foods are not that foreign. I like these foods. Um, that do you have any like research around that or just like even explanation like how the gut can impact our food cravings and like yeah yeah and you know it's it, it's very true what you're describing you know that if you really had no interest in vegetables your whole life then when you're 45 and showing up to the doctor and they're telling you to eat vegetables that you, it may be it may be a tough uh, uphill climb but you know, uh, as far as what, what I tell people, you know, first, it's important to explain why, I guess. And then it's also important to be practical and reasonable, uh, because that's that's one of the big things that I, I stand up for. 
you know, uh, in these health wars you watch online uh, on Instagram or Twitter, people say you have to eat this way or you have to eat that way. It's it's almost like mirroring our, our politics in this country. It's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it has to be this way or you're wrong uh, type of attitude. And, you know, uh, we're human beings and uh, we we live, we do things for fun, we have lives and uh, we all can't live in this vacuum bubble where it has to be one way or the highway, you know? So I try to be real practical and set reasonable expectations. You know, if, if somebody's eating no vegetables, hey, if you can get them to eat one vegetable a week when they're eating zero, you know, that's at least progress. And then, you know, over time you can get to where you need to get um, because every step in the right direction is progress and success. So it's kind of, I guess, your viewpoint on, on things. So, you know, if somebody is eating zero vegetables and you tell them they need to eat, you know, seven to nine vegetables, and then they follow up with you in a couple months, you think they're really going to eat seven to nine vegetables that they're going to go from zero to that in such a short period of time. I mean, maybe an an advanced, very motivated uh, learner type of person, but most people are not. I mean, if it was me, you know, knowing myself and I was in that position, it probably wouldn't be me either. So, you know, I tell people start by making one change a week. That's one way to kind of think about it. So, you know, uh, take something that you eat for breakfast. I don't know. Let's just make something up. Let's say they eat Cheerios for breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, you could say, well, instead of Cheerios, maybe we'll just make it steel cut oatmeal you know, uh, let's change it to an organic steel cut oatmeal. If that's too much of a drastic change, then maybe you can get them to say, throw some blueberries on top of that Cheerios, at least something, you know, to move in that right direction. So little steps, that's, you know, that's one of the uh, more important things that I, I talk to people about, because you have to be reasonable. Um, and as we go over time, you'll find that your tastes do change. Your interest in food do change. I experienced this myself personally, when I went through you know, my health journey, um, and you start craving the asparagus and the Brussels sprouts over, you know, the steak and the potatoes, you know, so your, your, your tastes do change over time. 100% exactly how all of this works. I don't know that we have fully elucidated. There's a lot of things to learn about the microbiome itself, but there is some uh, data and research uh, that suggests food is really a multidimensional experience. So what does that mean? So I, uh, if I'm giving too many analogies, just let me know. But I, I like to give a lot of analogies yeah, uh, to no, help it's helpful people to understand. Paint a picture. So one of the um, one of one of the made, make-believe stories that I uh, use to try to, uh, con- to to convey this concept to people is, let's say we have um, a five-year-old uh, girl who's driving her bike on the street. And everything's fine, life's fine, parents are fine, family's fine, there are no external factors. And she's just driving her bike in front of the house and she falls down and scrapes her knee pretty bad and it's bleeding and it hurts and she's crying for her mom. Mom comes out, rushes, gets her inside, takes care of her, cleans the wound, all that stuff. And, you know, she's really feeling, uh, you know, like she's in pain and, and not happy that this happened. And uh, mom says, oh, you know, uh, here, here's, here's a piece of chocolate. Here's a Hershey's chocolate bar. Um, you know, maybe that'll make you feel better. And it does, you know, sugar makes a lot of people feel better uh, temporarily. Um, and so the girl gets, um, 
uh, in a little bit of a better mood. She got her dopamine surge and didn't really think much about it. You know, moved on with her life, maybe even had four vegetables for dinner, who knows. But what happens is that this experience of something painful or uncomfortable being associated with something sweet or tasty gets downloaded in your brain like an app. Just think of it as like, oh, you went to the app store and you downloaded this app and it's sitting on your phone and it's doing nothing over the years. It's just sitting there. How many apps do you have on your phone that you opened once or downloaded and never really opened ever again? I probably have like 10 of them at least on my iPhone. Yeah. I don't know about you guys. So it's kind of like that. Um, and then now fast forward, uh, the same girl is in her 20s and she just broke up with a long-term relationship um, and is sad and upset and is just doing the groceries in the store by herself and you know, usually eats very healthy, um, but is walking down the aisle and what catches her eye is the aisle where all the candy bars are. And she doesn't know why, but something is gravitating or pulling her towards just go there and check it out. And she sees that same chocolate bar from when she was a kid. She doesn't really remember that this bike accident even happened, but something about this reminds her of her childhood and she just grabs it um, on an impulse and buys it and eats it and, and feels better about it. Uh, I mean, it feels better about her, her you know, mood temporarily. Um, and so it lifts her spirits a bit. And she gets a little nostalgic, you know, because nostalgia often can make us uh, feel, you know, happy, reminiscent about uh, our, our earlier years or positive experiences in the past. Um, what just happened right there, right? So what happened there is, you know, uh, the brain says, oh, look, um, little Susie is sad. I remember when she was sad when she was five and she got hurt and she was in pain and mom gave her chocolate and it was this kind of chocolate and she felt better. So I want Susie to be happy. So I'm going to make her crave this candy bar. And you know what? Look, it happened. It worked. It worked again. Great. So this app now becomes stronger in your brain because you've reinforced that process. But, you know, she doesn't know why am I sitting here eating this chocolate bar? I can't even I can't remember the last time I've eaten a chocolate bar. How many times have people said that? I mean, I, I, you know, I know this happens all the time. You don't know why you're doing, doing it and enjoying it. Um, and it, it's this, you know, it's this app that's opened up that's kind of uh, directing you towards eating that. And so some of cravings comes from there. Um, and we don't often think about, uh, you know, food and food cravings that way. We just say, oh, it's a bad habit, but there's a lot of things to it. So part of understanding how to break the cravings is understanding stress reduction and understanding what may be driving the cravings and understanding what interventions you could make when you get the, those cravings or what you could do in replacement of those cravings that might give you a similar dopamine boost, um, a similar good feeling in your, in your whole body, um, but not putting that inflammatory stuff into your body at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of how the process of sometimes going through the motions early on, then you adopt habits that become second nature. I think that can, it seems to play a role, even like with exercise habits that can reshape the gut microbiome in a way that your body craves then exercise in a healthy way mm -hmm. for you. Or mm -hmm. um, kind of like back to the diet front, I have a colleague who is 
constantly telling me that I just need to eat an animal-based diet and I do eat protein, but like more so a carnivore diet and that vegetables are toxic for me. And like, I do like vegetables. I'm like, Oh, don't leave my vegetables alone. But for that individual, they, they don't have the gut microbiome perhaps to digest the vegetables is why they think it's toxic, um, to their body. Um, and interestingly, like thinking about cravings, I recently got some food poisoning one night from actually some uh, greens, unwashed greens. Um, and I could see like why for about a week I was not craving vegetables at all. It was like my body and my gut biome was telling me like, no, I'm just, I'm not into that right now. And it makes sense because my gut microbiome had shifted through that experience. And so I think just kind of what you're trying to say here is just like a lot of times our food cravings are the things that we like, or that we think we like are more so related to like, what is the ecosystem inside of our gut um, and then by kind of like putting, uh, dusting off those wheels sometimes and going through the motions, we can perhaps change, change that too, that story for ourselves. Yeah. And a lot of what I, uh, talk to my patients about is understanding the microbiome and, and looking at it. So, you know, we can say that, uh, my gut or my body wants this kind of food, but, prove it to me. That's the kind of guy that I am. So let's see if your microbiome has good diversity or not. If your microbiome diversity is really poor, you know, then maybe we ought to look at ways to improve that. Um, and so uh, that's, uh, so, you know, cause a lot of times people will say, I, I have to eat this or that for this reason or another. And uh, I like to really uncover, uh, you know, is that truly the case? Is that good for your body? And if it's good for your body to be a vegan, then great. If it's good for your body to be a carnivore, then great. But let's see if it is or not. That's that's kind of how I approach it. Mm -hmm. And when you, what type of testing do you like love to use for my microbiome type of testing? Oh, um, for microbiome itself, um, I use a functional microbiome analysis primarily. Um, uh, and uh, it gives you a lot of information about the general status of the, the microbiome, how diverse the microbiome is, um, how, you know, how, what kind of bad guys there are there, what kind of good guys are there, um, how well certain uh, pathways that the microbiome uh, participates in uh, are being performed. So you get an idea of what's going on in the microbiome. One of the key points that I always like to make is that uh, sometimes or oftentimes uh, we get caught, people get caught in the idea of one bacteria or another. And I see this bacteria on my test and therefore I must have X, Y, or Z. And therefore I mix, must do, uh, you know, A, B, C, D steps. But that's really, that's not really the right way to look at things. It's like saying, um, uh, there's a problem in the Amazon rainforest, and I'm only going to look at one species of grass in order to determine what to do. I mean, you got to look at what's going on with the whole ecosystem. Uh, bacteria and, and you know other microbes they interact with each other, they communicate with each other. So just to focus on one uh, one name of one bacteria, you're really missing the whole point. We want to know what's going on in the ecosystem. How is this family, this community? of microbes interacting with each other and working with each other. Um, are the bad guys, uh, you know, potentially influencing the diversity and the health of the microbiome? 
uh, or are they just there in minimal amounts and, and somebody to know about? Um, uh, you know, uh, really, that's that's the key difference. I think uh, the, the way I was talking about fixating on certain bacteria names is kind of the old way of looking at the microbiome. You know, science and technology is rapidly evolving, and our knowledge base on the microbiome is rapidly evolving as well. And now we have the ability to sequence the entire gut microbiome with a stool test and get an understanding of some of these things. And I'm really excited about the future because there's a lot more for us to learn and a lot more for us to know. So um, there can only be more goodness coming out of uh, the research that's being conducted. I know. I love to just like one look at PubMed, maybe like if you put in the years, like 10 years ago, the research was. Yeah, do that. The, yeah, it's yeah. very, very cool when you do that, right? You see yeah. that there's so much research if you go in and you type it in, but it's all like in the last 10 years, majority yeah, of them, it's right? Just pouring out it, related to everything, anything you want to relate it to. There's some study that's probably been done on it now. Um, the key, key concept is that it's actually probably not really the microbes themselves that are the things you got to focus on. It's what those microbes are doing. And this is the concept of metabolites. We talked about this a little bit when we were talking about short chain fatty acids a minute ago, which is an example of a metabolite. But what a metabolite you can think of in simple terms is something that these microbes make in response to something else, whether it be eating or whether it be exposed to a toxin. So it could be something good, it could be something bad. Um, it's these metabolites, which are chemicals that are released from the process of whatever is happening in response to whatever was presented to the microbes, these are the things that are influencing our health. So it's important to know who the microbes are, but it's more important to know what they're doing and how they could be impacting our health and then what we can do about it. You know, if you're just focusing on E. coli written on a, on a, on a specific kind of test, you're going to miss the picture because how many species and strains of how many different strains of E. coli are there? So when you look at E. coli, how do you even know which E. coli you're even talking about when you look at some of these things? You know, maybe maybe these things are just dormant. They're not doing anything to you. You don't really know what the strain is. So it's really very important to get very, very specific about which bacteria, if you're going to focus or fixate on a particular bacteria down to the strain level to really understand because it's just like saying, I have a dog. Well, is it a black dog? Is it a white dog? Furry hair, curly hair. Uh, you know, is it, a, is it a, a grown dog or a baby dog? You know, a puppy, you know, like there's so many variables when you just say E. coli or you just say dog. You want to really know that it's this kind of dog, this color, this kind of freckles. So you know exactly who it is. Otherwise, when you're taking a picture, it's like you're not taking a picture of somebody's whole face. You're taking a picture of the tip of their earlobe and saying, identify who this is. So that's really the difference. And this is one of the big things that I like to talk to people about when trying to understand how to even use the microbiome in clinical practice. Oh, I love how you said that. And how about just like cleansing in quotes or like, do folks ever ask you about like, do I have parasites? Should I get rid of them? Um, and do those play a role in, in health and health optimization? Well, I mean, I think if you have an infection or a parasite, it certainly, it certainly could impact the composition of the microbiome. I'm the kind of person, like I said earlier, is if you have a parasite, then show me that you have a parasite. Let's see what the parasite is. We have the ability to, to diagnose these kinds of things at a very high level. And if it's there, then we'll deal with it. But if it's not, then 
we're really just talking theory. You know, candida comes in the same conversation. A lot of people say, oh, I have bloating and I, and I have sugar cravings and sugar makes me worse. So therefore I have candida because I've read all these blogs and books about candida and sugar. Well, you know, how many times have I heard that? And how many times have I actually seen candida signature truly on a microbiome analysis? It's like rarely ever. So, you know, sugar does a lot of things. Sugar can cause bloating because this also causes dysbiosis or imbalance in the, in the microbes of the back in, in the, in the microbiome. So doesn't necessarily mean that we're talking about a yeast infection or a yeast overgrowth. So it's important to understand what we are actually talking about, uh, what microbes we're actually talking about, and then make a strategy around that. Um, uh, a lot of people will do these parasite cleanses. You know, you've you, you grown up in a, in a wealthy suburb, your whole life never went to another country. And, and I don't know where you're getting these parasites from though, you know, and they're never documented that there's any parasite. And, you know, those treatments, these cleanses may actually do more harm to the microbiome than good. So, you know, it, it's important to kind of strategize how to address certain things. And, you know, if you're going to go through a cleanse and it's a major issue, maybe look at the microbiome before, look at the microbiome afterwards and understand what impact it had on, um, on the whole ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just looking at the whole picture. Well, do you have any quick tips about just like, what are your go-to maybe top three to five strategies for optimizing the gut and gut microbiome that you would uh, advise patients or anyone listening to this episode? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to really not forget the basics. Um, I've written about this a lot. I've written book chapters on this topic. And that's and these are the lifestyle factors. We always talk about diet, um, but I usually save diet for the last part of the conversation because everybody talks about diet. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of other things, you know. You, you, you talked briefly about exercise. Exercise, uh, people who are more active actually have a more diverse microbiome. Um, if you have better sleep habits and you're targeting seven to eight hours of sleep a night, you may have a more balanced microbiome. If you're reducing stress, uh, you may have a more balanced microbiome. If you're avoiding toxins, whether that's in, you know, beauty products or your clothing, furniture, paint on the walls or food you're ingesting, food chemicals, you know, that can also impact your microbiome's uh, diversity as well. And even, you know, uh, your, your inter social interconnectedness, your relationships, having fun basically is how I, how I describe that. This impacts your microbiome. So you can do a lot of good to your microbiome without taking a single pill, you know, uh, or, or a single supplement, because these things in the literature have demonstrably been shown to improve the microbiome. And it's the diversity of the microbiome that is the key concept. And these things can improve the diversity of the gut microbiome. So um, we want to do those things because they're very easy to accomplish because they're lifestyle factors. Uh, yes, the lifestyle factors I often talk about as well, um, just even like stress, how much <laughs> stress plays a role in our total health and stress mitigation, both physically and mentally. Well, Dr. Singh, where, where can folks find out more about you and your awesome book, Rescue Your Health? Yeah, thanks. Well, I have a website, rescueyourhealth.com, and uh, all the information on the book is there. And uh, it's available on Amazon and a lot and with a, a lot of other major booksellers. 
And it's a, it's a book that I spend a lot of time working on, uh, trying to really simply outline for people what they can do to start understanding their health on a more meaningful level. Um, you know, and it's called Rescue Your Health because even if you're healthy, I'm sure that there's some, or you feel that you're healthy, I'm sure that there are things that could be optimized because there's no such thing as a perfect human being, even though a lot of people may think that they're perfect. There are a lot of things that could always be um, improved on, uh, yeah, whether we're talking about the microbiome or eating towards your nutritional genetics or working towards reducing inflammatory markers or trying to improve your um, CT coronary calcium score, your uh, visceral adipose tissue score. So these are some of the key tests that I talk about, uh, my, my favorite tests in, uh, in my book and how we can use these to understand what we should do for ourselves and how we can follow them to measure progress. Love that. Well, as we wrap up, one of my very favorite uh, questions to ask you as well would be what is a health mystery in your life that you've solved recently or something like a cool aha, an epiphany that you had just whether it was the study you stumbled upon or just like something that you tried and you figured something out for yourself. For me personally or for, yeah, for a patient? For you. Um, well, <laughs> um, I think uh, I can use an example, I guess, from a few years ago when I started uh, my own health journey and I was trying to use these tests to optimize my own health. And yeah, um, I'd get headaches a lot and uh, would feel kind of uh, anxious and jittery, you know, uh, uh, most of the time after, you know, in the afternoon. And uh, I realized uh, by doing some genetic testing that I have uh, a, a particular kind of genetic mutation uh, that uh, would cause me to have those kinds of symptoms if I drink more than two cups of coffee a day. So that was one 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 example. And, you know, certain people don't metabolize caffeine fast and certain people do. And I'm one of the slow metabolizers. So if I have two cups of coffee, for example, uh, that caffeine is breaking down much more slowly in my body versus maybe somebody who's not. And, you know, my two cups may be more like somebody's four cups, for example. Um, and when I made that change, my headaches uh, went away um, and the jitteriness or anxiety that I might have experienced also resolved. And it sounds like a simple thing uh, if you look at it in retrospect, but, you know, a lot of times this is how this is how we are. There is something that's happening. We don't really understand why we like doing it. We've been doing it every day for a long time and it's got to be something else. And then when you find that wow, maybe there's a biologic reason why this is happening to me. And then you make a change and, and the change actually creates a positive impact. Then you're like, wow, you know, I'm glad I actually looked into my health on this way. And there are many, many examples of these in different people um, that, uh, uh, you know, that I have that uh, in my, with my clients and, and patients that, um, that uh, also, you know, maybe one day we can talk about, but uh, it, using this information to impact their health in the long run and, uh, and in the short run uh, for particular symptoms is very useful. So now I know that if, if I have more than that, then I may increase my risk of having a heart attack or high blood pressure in addition to those symptoms that I was feeling so I can make an intervention. So that's an example of how you can use a, 
personalized information to make an impact on your health in the long run and in the short run. Oh, I love that. That's a great example. And last question is just uh, any biohacks that you've been into lately or wellness hacks or just go a go-to that just makes you feel good. Um, well, uh, I have been, uh, into my infrared mat lately. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so I have a infrared, uh, PEMF mat, uh, and that's very relaxing to me. It helps me with, you know, back and neck discomfort after doing colonoscopies all day. Um, and, uh, another thing that I like actually these days is a, uh, it's a, it's a vagal nerve stimulator that I've been playing around with. And, um, you, it's, uh, the one that I've been, uh, using is called uh, gamma core and it it, um, is FDA approved for migraine and, and headaches. Um, yeah, but I have been playing around with it just on my own to see how it helps with digestion and, and motility and things like that, because, you know, the, that's a whole other conversation about the vagus nerve and, and GI symptoms. Um, and, uh, that's another cool thing that I've been, uh, playing around with too, as, uh, as a potential biohack to look, look forward to in the future. Ooh, I like that. There's so many cool things out there that are tools in the tool belt. We'll have to have you back on the show and have a part two sometime. <laughs> yeah, I would love to. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Singh. We'll definitely be keeping up with your work. Thanks. Appreciate right. it. Well, that's it for today's episode. Again, if you're liking the show, please don't hesitate to click the five stars button and leave a review in your podcast app. I absolutely love hearing from you and it helps us cultivate more health detectives just like you. All right, until next time, go out there and continue to quiet the noise in the health, food, and fitness world.